The mouth of the Lord has spoken. This book of Isaiah is from the Lord. Before we get started here, may I uh, uh, just say thank you uh, to our congregation, God's people here. You've been a blessing to us. Uh, You've always taken care of us, provided well. God's used you. And then you give a Christmas gift and extra, and that was so much fun. And we look forward to looking forward to some ways to be able to use that in, in a fun way that, for God's glory. And um, just want to say thank you again. God's used you. You're special to us. Uh, hey, would you take your handout as well? And uh, again, there's a, there's a place to do some a uh, few notes here in just a few moments if you'd like to follow through with that. But also on the back, let me just remind you of the statement that's listed at the top. We're followers of Christ. We're following Christ and, help, and helping others follow Christ. And so as followers of Christ, we proclaim the love of Jesus and the power of the Spirit to the glory of God. We want to please the Lord in all that we do here today and throughout this year. Would you keep that statement in your mind throughout this year? We are followers of Christ, and as followers of Christ, this is what we do. We're going to proclaim the love of Jesus, not in our own strength, but in the power of the Spirit, and it's to the glory of God. Would you also notice that first announcement, our worship night at Walnut Park Baptist Church? That's tonight, all right? That's here at 6.30 this evening. Let me urge you to come back, and we're going to spend an hour praying, singing, looking at scriptures, encouraging each other in the Lord. We need this hour of prayer. We need this together. And I urge you to come. Uh, Make time in your schedule for this. Throughout the month of January, we hope to be spending extra time in prayer. Uh, We'll encourage you about finding some prayer partners. Uh, We'll connect you with a deacon for the year that you'll be able to have as a prayer partner and a friend and a help. Um, uh, We're going to have a day of prayer later in the month where we'll sign up for different times throughout the the day to have a continuous prayer going up for various needs and opportunities that the Lord has, and we'll be able to be a part of that. We'll explain that here in a a little while, uh, in the next couple of days in your email and so forth. But can we start this this evening with a... An hour of prayer. Just come. No great expectations other than just, just to pray and to be in the Word together and to sing and to look to the Lord and to know that God is with us and we can trust Him. Lord, would you guide us to that place where we really will trust you? We talk about it. You call us to that, to walk by faith and not by sight. And Lord, would we as a people truly trust you? I'd ask, Lord, that you would teach us to number our days and to apply our hearts to wisdom, not just trusting our efforts or our our energies or our, our hopes, but we're trusting in the Lord. And faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. So guide us in this time of prayer throughout this month to go deeper into your Word and to seek your ways in this. Lord, we use these next few minutes, help us to be able to concentrate on you and to draw near to you, and to know your love, and the confidence we can have in that. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm not sure what's going on with my sound pack here, whatever. There's a little bit of interruption going on. So um, should I just go with this? Or...
Well, let's give it a try. If it keeps on going, we'll switch over to that. All right. So, well, there we go again. All right. I don't know what I'm doing there. Maybe I just adjust a little bit, and maybe it'll just disappear, huh? Maybe, maybe I'll I'll need need all the help I can get with that. All right. Isaiah chapter one. Today, uh, oh, also let me let me remind you of this. Today we're going to be looking at the Lord's table here in just a few moments, and this is a great emphasis to be able to look to this book in Isaiah this first Sunday of the month, and to be able to see that. It's because of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ that makes, makes known to us the hope of the gospel. And we need hope. And the children of Israel needed to understand that hope, and so do we. And our hope isn't just in our efforts, but it's in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Isaiah was pointing to that, and we can see that. We have a hope that remains sure. Uh, the name Isaiah, that's the book that we're looking at here, the name Isaiah means the Lord is salvation. And we know that God has a plan for that, the plan of salvation. God has a plan. In chapter 1 of Isaiah, the very first line of the book, verse 1, we read of the subject matter of this book. The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. So this is the subject matter, all right? He is giving a vision. This vision, well, God would speak to prophets in the Old Testament times and give them uh, a revealing of his plan. God has a plan. God has a plan for you. God has a plan for his kingdom. God has a plan for eternity. God's in charge of this. He has a plan. And this vision is revealing God's plan to his people. And it's concerning Judah and Jerusalem. So specifically, this plan in this book of Isaiah is about the people of Israel. These people that were living in Judah and in Jerusalem. Verse 2, you'll see here in your Bible, verse 2 shows us God's purpose concerning these people of Israel. And God resolves that a nation of rebellious children, oh, hear heavens and give ear earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children I have reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. These children who have rebelled, God has resolved that they will be changed into witnessing servants among the nations, that they would be changed, that they would be making known to the rest of the world who God really is. Would you keep your place in Isaiah chapter 1 and go a little bit further back to chapter 43, and you'll see here this calling of God upon this nation, their purpose, their reason for their existence as a nation was to be a witness. Look at verse 43. Chapter 43, verse 10. Oh, we'll go back to verse 9. All the nations gather together and the peoples assemble. Who among them can declare this and show us the former things? Let them bring their witnesses to prove their, them right and let them hear and say it is true. So that's what the nation's picture is. But God says to Israel, You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant 
whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. And the nations need to know this through Israel. Their reason for their existence, their purpose, is to make it known to the rest of the world that God alone is God. They're witnesses. Verses 3 and 4, back in chapter 1. Verses 3 and 4 reveal the situation. They who were called to be witnesses, they who were made to follow the Lord, have forsaken the Lord. Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly, they have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. That's their situation. Not a good scene, is it? Certainly, God has a plan. He has a purpose for the nation of Israel, but they've rejected it. The message of Isaiah, this book with 66 chapters, it's a longer book in the Old Testament. The message of Isaiah is this. God's people must trust this Holy One of Israel. Trust the Lord. They need to learn that. They need to do that. And so God is giving them this prophecy, this vision, this message, so that they will learn to trust in the Holy One of Israel. That's the whole point. And we need that as well. In fact, again, keep your place in Isaiah 1 and go to chapter 26, will you? Chapter 26, just a few pages back. And these are verses that you know well. Isaiah chapter 26, we'll start in verse 3. You, the Lord, keep him in perfect peace whose mind, what you're thinking about, is concentrating, is stayed on you because he trusts in you. And here's our verse, verse 4. Trust in the Lord, Israel. Trust in the Lord, Christian. Trust in the Lord forever, for the Lord God is an everlasting rock. This is our confidence. That's the message we need as well. That's the message I need. I need to learn to trust the Lord. Not in what I think I can do, what I can accomplish, what what resources I have at my hand, but that I can trust in the Lord alone. These people of Israel were not to be trusting in the other nations, and we'll see that as the book unfolds. They are not to trust in their wealth, and they had that for a while. <laughs> they were not to trust in their military, military might, and they certainly had that. They were not to trust in false idols. These are the things that we trust in as well. And that's not our trust. Trust in the Holy One of Israel, this Holy One. That's God's central attribute, His holiness that uniqueness of God. He is the only one who is holy, the Holy One of Israel. In fact, that's the main title that Isaiah gives God in this book, the Holy One of Israel. It's used like 25 times in these chapters, the Holy One of Israel. Very rarely is that title used in the rest of the book, but it's something that Isaiah uses on purpose, the Holy One of Israel. That word holy, we'll come back to that here in a few messages down the road on this as we get to chapter 6. But that word holy is so important 
It speaks of this absolute moral purity of our God. We are not. He is. And it speaks that he is so much higher and greater in everything that he's made. He's above his creation. So we don't bring God down to our level. We look to who God really is. Israel needed to learn to do that. We must as well. Look and trust in this Holy One of Israel. Verse 4 reveals that this Holy One of Israel, this Jehovah, had been forsaken. They had been despised. They had been estranged, or literally, they're turning away from this Holy One. They have rebelled. Now, how will the nation of Israel ever learn to trust in God? How will they learn this, to trust in God? And the answer, as we get further into this study of Isaiah, is this. God uses judgment to guide his people to trust him. God uses judgment. So we have 39 chapters that are to follow here. 39 chapters of judgment after judgment. Judgment on the people, judgment on the nations, and the nations that are around them. And there will be more about that later. But here's the thing. God uses hard things to help us to trust him. Now, will you let that happen? That's the question for us all. Are we going to trust God even in hard times? Are we going to trust him when we're going through the judgments? Here's a question. Ponder this the days ahead. Is God good to judge his people? I mean, don't, isn't supposed to, God supposed to do everything nice for us? Yet God is judging his people. Is that a good thing? Well, certainly God's doing it. It has to be a good thing. But we question that, don't we? We question God's judgments. Let me just look at it this way. Parents, are you wise and good to correct your children? We live in a culture nowadays that looks upon that as a bad thing, that parents would correct their children. But whom the Lord loves, he corrects. Any parent understands that need and that, and that longing. Because you love your children, you want to correct them. And so you will do what is necessary to get their attention so they learn what is true and right and the way to live. God is doing that for his children, the children of Israel. Again, more on that as we develop this study of Isaiah. Chapters 1 through 5 are, are really a unit. They're kind of a, a preface. They come before the call that we'll look at in chapter 6, Isaiah's call, when he sees the Lord, holy, holy, holy. And the angels are proclaiming, holy, holy, holy. And Isaiah falls on his face before this holy, holy, holy God. May we understand that. These chapters serve as sort of a preface to the rest of the book, chapters 1 through 5, describing the worst of times and the best. Chapter 1, in particular, addresses the necessity of the judgments. 
of a good God that they can trust. The necessity of the judgments. Chapter 1 has five sections. Let's walk through these very quickly here, and then we'll make some application. Chapter 1 has five sections. God's people are rebellious children. See that in verse 2. They've rebelled. And in their rebellion, they've shown their foolishness. You know, even an ox understands. Even, even the, the donkey understands his master's crib. But, but Israel, they don't know. They do not understand. That's a description of the foolishness of these people in their rebellion. By the way, the fool says there is no God. Or the fool says no God. That's ignorance. Next, in verses 5 through 9, this judgment has already begun. The judgment has already begun. Why are you struck down? Why are you continuing to rebel? The whole head is sick. The whole heart is faint. The sole of the foot, even to the head, there is no soundness. There is problem after problem after problem. The judgment has already begun. We'll see this with Hezekiah and what happened in Lachish and the problems of Syria coming upon them. Sacrifices, their multiplied prayers, their worthless worship. God rejects this. God rejects their fake worship. In fact, he says in verse 11, I've had enough. Did your parents ever say that to you? I've had enough. There's no pleasure that, can, that, that he, he will take in this. In fact, he says, I hate this. I am weary. I will hide. I will not listen. I hold this in derision and scorn. And then verses 20, 16 through 20, God is extending an invitation. God is extending an invitation. We'll look at that. If you will turn and in expressing your faith, you obey. God extends an invitation. Come now. Let us reason together, says the Lord. Come. However, in verses 21 to the end of the chapter, the rebel condition of the people means that judgment is inevitable. Therefore, verse 24, because of these rebellions, there is judgment. And you can see this in verse 25 and 26 and verses 28 through 31. So with that context, that summary of this chapter, as we see it unfold, as we understand its part in the beginning of this book, as we're looking at God looking to help his people learn to trust in him as the Holy One of Israel, one who is so far above and so right in every way, you can trust God. These people needed to learn that, and so do we. With that context, we need to draw out four truths for life today that still matter. Isaiah chapter 1 still matters. So the title of the message is that word, still. You'll see why as we go through this. The first truth, number one, sin still has enormous consequences. You can't sin and get away with it. No matter how old you are, you cannot sin and get away with it. Sin still has enormous consequences. Look at verses 4 through 6 in Isaiah 1. 
They are laden. The sinful nation is laden. They're, over, they're just piling on top more and more. They're laden with iniquity. They're, they're offspring of evildoers. One of the consequences of sin is more sin. And one of the consequences of sin is more sin by our children because of our sin. There are consequences to sin. And you think you're right in doing this, but you've forsaken the Lord and you've despised him and you've turned from him. You've estranged yourself. God hasn't moved. God's still there. But one of the consequences of sin is you think you can live, with, live without God and his wisdom and way. Sin still has enormous consequences. There's sickness. They're, they're fearful. They're confused. And the wounds are raw. I can't help but think about our nation as I read verses 7 through 9. It remind me of our time. Your country lies desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. In your very presence, foreigners devour your land. It is desolate as overthrown by the foreigners. And the daughters of Zion, and the daughter of Zion is left like a booth in a vineyard, like a lodge in the cucumber field, like a besieged city. If the Lord of hosts had not left us a few survivors, we should have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Look at verse 10. God calls them Sodom. God calls them Gomorrah. The way that Sodom was living was the way that Israel was living. And God said there were consequences for their sin. Sin still has enormous consequences. Number two, hypocrisy still disgusts the holy God. It's such a turnoff to God. Again, this is verses 11 through 15. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord? I have had enough of the burnt offerings of the rams and the fat of the well-fed beast. All your religious actions, I do not delight in these things. In fact, my soul hates these things. They're disgusting. It's a turnoff, God says. What's a turnoff to you? What, turns, what just turned your stomach? What disgusts you? A number of years ago, many years ago, I was a youth pastor. I loved that. It was such a sweet, fruitful time of life and early in our marriage and so many, so many wonderful memories. But there's one memory that is not so good. Uh, we were traveling from Colorado to the East Coast, and we were somewhere in the middle of Kansas, and we'd stop for a meal. And uh, with teenagers, you have to stop for pizza. So we stopped for pizza. And they had on their menu of this particular little pizza place that was alongside the interstate highway. What good pizza can you get there? <laughs> right? But we did. We had pizza there. And uh, I thought, well, I'll try that pineapple pizza. I took that in, didn't really settle real well, got back in the van, somebody else was driving, and I was getting sicker and sicker and sicker and sicker, and all of a sudden, it just came out all over the van. 
talk about awful and what an embarrassing, helpless thing to be a youth pastor with teenagers full of this van and, and I just uh, throwing up all over the place. And it was that pineapple pizza that came up to this day. Pineapple pizza turns my, I can't imagine, why would anyone ever put pineapple on pizza? Some people kind of like that, I but for what, but that turned my stomach, and I don't want to have anything to do with that ever again. There's some things that turn God's stomach, where God actually says, I hate that, my soul hates this. You know, I cannot help but make the connections of between Isaiah chapter 1 and Romans chapters 1 and 2. In Romans chapter 1, there's some things that disgust God and the progression of the awfulness of sin, and you know that chapter. Therefore God gave them up to the lust of their hearts, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, and so forth all through the rest of the chapter. But in chapter 2, there's something else that, that just disgusts God to no end. And it brings God's righteous judgment. And you know what it is? Fake worship. You're going through all the right, you're doing all the right things, but your heart isn't in it. And God says this disgusts him. And man looks on the outward appearance. We may think we all look good, but God looks on the heart and he knows what's there. In fact, chapter 2 of Romans ends with, it's a matter of the heart, not your outward actions. May we understand this. There's some things that disgust God. Would you note in verses 16 and 17 that this is not a works salvation that's being addressed when it says, wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from before your eyes, cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, do the right thing, correct oppression. Where you've gone wrong, make amends, do things that are right, bring justice, do what is right to the fatherless and plead the widow's cause. This is not a works salvation. This is a picture of repentance in action, a yielding the heart to the ways of God, to his righteousness. You're actually removing some things, you're ceasing some things, and you're bringing about what is right in your own heart and mind. This is a picture of repentance, and there's a call to repentance. In fact, John the Baptist, announcing the ministry of Jesus, was saying, repent, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And that leads us to a beautiful point in this chapter. It's verse 18. We still have the hope of the gospel. We still have the hope of the gospel. Yes, sin has enormous consequences, and we're all sinners. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And the wages of sin is death. And hypocrisy still offends a holy God. It disgusts a holy God. But in spite of that, even with that, this God who is a holy, righteous God that we can trust, you know what he does? He gives us hope. We still have the hope of the gospel. The children of Israel were looking forward to that hope. Thankfully, we can look back on that fulfilled hope in the person of Jesus Christ. And I love this verse 18. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord 
Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be like wool. Now for us, that's not quite such a picture that we really understand. But for everyone then in that place, in that culture, they got the picture. Though your sins are as scarlet, though they be red like crimson. Crimson is literally the word worm. Though your sins be red like crimson. Crimson is a worm. It refers to the Kermes insect that that infested their, their scrub oak that was all over that region. And this worm would lay eggs. And those lay eggs were bright red and they were called scarlet. And so those eggs would break open and those trees would be stained with this red dye. And it would stay there. Sin is viewed as this indelible permanent marker dye that stains everything about it. Have you ever stained something that you just didn't want to have stained and then all of a sudden it was no more any good? Sometime back, my, uh, my wife got me her, a shirt that she said was her favorite. She just loved that shirt. It was a dress shirt, like for Sundays. And I had a pen in my pocket like I do now, and I'll take it out now. <laughs> and that pen leaked on this brand new shirt, and I had this stain of ink right here underneath the pocket. And we did all we could to get that stain out of there, but it was there for good. Ended up having to throw away the favorite shirt. Couldn't do anything about it. And that's the picture here. The stain of our sin is so bad we can't do anything about it. It's there. It's permanent. Yet the point here is all your attempts to wash and be clean will be useless to remove such a dye, such a stain. Yet they shall be white as snow. They shall be pure as wool. That's a picture of something yet to come. If you keep on reading through this book, you'll see this contrast of our sin, yet the coming purity of the promised one who would deal with our sin problem. And this contrast is beautiful. It's, it's, this, this, this stain of sin is removed so that we are now pure white as snow and wool. So as you're reading chapter 1 of Isaiah and you're seeing this promise of this hope, of this good thing, of cleansing that is promised, that we all long for, you have to ask the question, how? How? Well, God had already made some promises and Isaiah is going to expand on that so that not only do we see Israel and their purpose is to be witnessing of this mighty holy God who is the one that they can trust, they are going to discover that this one that they can trust is actually a servant himself for them to become what they could not become. And we go to Isaiah 53. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. Yet the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. We have the hope of the gospel and it's fulfilled. It's not just some, well, 
idea. It's done. In fact, Jesus Christ has finished the cause. So God's gospel is God's plan. His vision, remember the vision of Isaiah, it's his vision of the coming Redeemer who would remove our stain of sin. What could wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What could make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. So here in a few moments, we're going to gather again and say, thank you, Lord, as we remember the finished work of Jesus Christ. Jesus the Messiah bore our wrath so that we would not have to bear the wrath. So one option is that Jesus bears the wrath. The second option is that you bear the wrath. Seems like a no-brainer to me. I want Jesus to do it. And I want his love and forgiveness. That leads us to the fourth truth. Therefore, even though we are having a problem of consequences of sin, and even though we still are very hypocritical in our worship, God gives us the hope of the gospel in the coming Messiah. And because of that, how you live still matters. Still. Consequences of sin are there still. God still is turned off to hypocrisy. We still have the hope of the gospel, and how you live still matters. That's what we see in verses 19 and 20. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. There is a promise here by God. If you be willing and obedient, because of this gospel message of this cleansing that's promised, you can respond with a willing heart that obeys. That's what sanctification is. For the Christian, you are blessed with the Holy Spirit to empower you to do something you cannot do, and that is to want to open your will to obeying the Lord, and then you make those decisions day by day to obey the Lord. That's sanctification. And the rest of your life, because of the hope of the gospel, you can live in a way that reflects the gospel, and you can be that witness. How you live still matters. In fact, living out Christ's righteousness, this sanctification comes down to this. Hearing God and doing it. It's not all that complicated. In fact, this word obey in this language means to listen well and then to respond. Christian, because of the gospel, learn to listen well and respond. And obeying God is so good. You'll eat the good of the land. It's worth it to obey the Lord. The ongoing results of that in your life and in the life of your family and the life of your children to follow, these results are so very good. When we walk with the Lord in the light of his word, what a glory he sheds on our way. While we do his good will, he abides with us still while we trust and obey.
Lord, teach us to number our days that we may apply our hearts unto wisdom. This book has been opened. We're understanding why you gave this message, this vision, this plan to the children of Israel so that they would learn to trust you. Lord, would you speak to us in the same way? But we understand sin has horrible consequences. And right now the Holy Spirit is prompting you about that, each and every Christian here. God hates hypocrisy still. God sees the heart. He knows if you're real or not. But thank God for the hope of the gospel. Right now, would you tell the Lord that? Thank you, God, that you wash me clean by the blood of the Lamb. Thank you, Jesus. If you have yet to believe in Jesus Christ, your Savior, right now, will you pray out to God? Oh, God, I need your cleansing. It's through Jesus alone I can be saved. God, I want that. The beautiful thing is God promises to hear that prayer. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Will you believe that? And Christian, because of the hope of the gospel, we can obey. We can listen well and heed and do what you tell us to do because you've given us the Holy Spirit. Oh God, speak to us. And may we continue to do this, living out your sanctified will, your plan, your vision for us, because of the hope of the gospel. We pray this in Jesus' name.